All right, welcome back to the Cracks in Postmodernity. We have a guest who's been here before, back for a second round, uh, Destiny Herndon De La Rosa, who's the founder of the New Wave Feminists. So Destiny, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me back. So we were just saying it's been about a year and a half. Last time you were here with Letitia Adams, one of our friends, who's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. And it was so, it was such a fun conversation. Yes. And it's, you know, that I don't know if you have this happen where you meet somebody and then, like, I I knew her before, but this was our first time, the three of us together, and the energy was so high. So, when you like meet somebody and you make a good first impression, you're like super funny. And then, like, you see them again out in real life later, and maybe you're even having like a crappy day, but like, you all of a sudden, like, your A game comes back because it like brings it out. So, I was like, I wonder if that's going to happen with this podcast. I'm going to be like back to being on. Like, I and yes. so far, probably no. I think maybe, maybe Letty was the one who brought that energy. It might have been all her. Um, so, but last time we recorded, we finished the podcast with you roasting Jersey and me roasting Texas. So I, I think we have to pick up where we left off. I need to give you a fair chance to defend Texas, even though, you know, I should know I've only been to Houston, which is, as you say, the one bit. Um, so tell, tell the listeners, um, what is so great about Texas? What, what, what's the deal there? I mean, we're the only state that was our own country at one point, right? We were the Republic of Texas. And so I think that above and beyond makes it special. Um, my stepdad's from California and he's like, I don't know what you people are so proud of. Like, have you been to other places? But there's something about it. And especially this last year, um, I've been doing a lot of work along the border. We just got a shelter in Juarez, Mexico. So I'm in Dallas and I have to drive all the way to like El Paso, which for people who are unfamiliar, you know, Dallas is kind of never eat soggy wheat, like east and then El Paso is all the way at like the tippy point, almost New Mexico. So I get to drive. And I say that I get to, I don't have to, I get to yeah. drive like 11 hours and still be in my state. Can you say that? Eleven? Oh my God. 11 hours and still be in my state. And it's beautiful. It's just wide open. And I found that the only other place even similar to Dallas is Atlanta. I can maybe live there, but I would never. Dallas would have to just a giant Dallas shaped sinkhole would have to happen for me to live anywhere else. But I feel like anytime I go to other states, I actually feel really claustrophobic. I don't know how y'all do it because like there's something just about the wide open beauty of the Republic of Texas. That's amazing. Now, Houston, gross. I mean, definitely like throw that all the way in the trash. Uh, it already has been. Clearly, it smells like it. Not a fan of Houston. Um, I actually just moderated this really fancy panel in D.C. And the moderator or the guy who, who organized the whole thing was from Houston. So he's introducing me as the moderator. And he like a good minute of his intro of me was just how much I hate Houston. And I was like, do I really talk about it that much? So but now you're the second person who's like, go ahead, <laughs> talk about Houston more. Um, so, yeah, evidently that's part of my brand, hating Houston. My husband's from there his family's from there I still go there all the time I'm learning to love it it's it's the flying cockroaches um El Paso is amazing though Austin Austin's California now but we'll get it back eventually we'll kick those people out it'll be fine uh and then Dallas is where it's at so I think you just need to explore some of our other places I will say San Antonio a friend described it as the like if you walk across a blacktop uh parking lot and then spray your feet off like it's that's San Antonio and I she's not super wrong about that I can't remember if I, if I gave that analogy last podcast um San Antonio can do some work but um amazing tacos and they drink them with big red that's what I know about San Antonio because I've been there twice so now I'm just giving you random uninteresting facts about the Republic of Texas but tell me that's something that is should impress me about New Jersey because I mean I might have accidentally stepped on it one time because it's tiny so I've probably no. been in that area maybe uh. I, 
been there for a second, but what, what would I need to know if I were there that I would need to see that's so amazing about New Jersey? It depends because you're saying you like the whole wide open, the natural kind of vibe in Texas. And there are parts of the garden state which are like naturally beautiful. So if you go, we, you know, we have the beaches, we have um we like in the central part we have like a lot of farmland and they you know in the the spring and summer they grow fruits and stuff so you can go pick but i'm more a fan of like the urban kind of vibe so like i don't know newark which you know seventh biggest murder capital in the country is also a cultural hotspot the food the nightlife but I don't know. So like, I like that kind of those parts of Jersey, but more than anything, I just love the personalities. I love our attitude that, you know, we're obnoxious, we're crass, but we're real, you know, it's like, that's, that's the main draw. And I think you would enjoy that part of us. Like, I think, you know, you'd get a kick out of Jersey personalities. All but... right. I mean, Newark is killing it. That's what I learned. So I yeah. would have to go there uh, just for the violence and, um, yeah, the beachfront stuff. I remember that from like the one episode of Jersey Shore I ever saw. People were like mm. on those lifted houses at the beach, and then someone was ripping somebody's yeah. like weave out. Like I think on the stairs, and so I was like, "That is the trashy beach." There are like okay. different levels. There's like bougie beach. There's like the nature lover beaches, and you see all the wildlife. And there's the trashy get sloshed beach, which is Seaside Heights. It's where Jersey Shore was filmed, and you can still go. They have the house. And they have the garage. It's like painted the colors of the Italian flag with like a jersey outline of the jersey map, and people go take pictures. So if I ever come up yeah. there, can can we go there and then like I pretend to rip your hair off, like and we reenact? I'll put a weave on, and yes, then so that it rips easily. It Maybe don't glue it down. Yeah, no, I'll have to to make sure I do it right. Well, I will say that the thing that it sounds like we both have in common is very real people. So you're like, yeah, we're real with our attitude and our crassness and rudeness. I would argue Texans are real because we're lovely and we are genuinely effing lovely. And so like, that is what we have to offer too. Like you will mm -hmm. seldom go into a gas station or a neighborhood where someone doesn't wave at you and people don't talk to you. And we're all just incredibly nice. And I think that can be jarring for people. Yeah, but you're saying they mean it. They, oh, mean they totally it. mean it. Okay, they totally because mean it. like I think of nice, like I think of Midwest nice, which is not truly nice it's a show yeah let's nice. let's definitely crap on the midwest because neither okay. we don't neither have to <laughs> no because that's fake but you're saying texas <laughs> nice is genuine they actually want to know how you're doing if they they say hello what's going on yeah you don't you get a flat yeah. tire i mean somebody is johnny on the spot there to like help you and drive you to a gas station and make sure that you're safe like i just feel like people here go out of their way and i'm lucky i live in a great neighborhood that's really tight-knit and so one of our neighbors jokes that it's like the 1950s sans jim crow like our kids play outside like everybody like you know i mean we don't leave our doors unlocked because we're not stupid we all watch dateline but like we could probably if we wanted to and a couple summers back somebody actually our power went out like in the middle of august for the whole neighborhood and so one of the families at the end of the street took their kids to the library just to get some air conditioning and their house was broken into and these people like pulled up in the driveway go in start just ransacking their house like i saw the photos like every room it looked like an fbi raid type like people pulling stuff out whatever so the neighbor next door is like that's not their car why are these people taking their tv that's not the people who live there so he goes over pulls really? the keys out of the ignition to the car goes back to his house calls the cops and the people like got away on foot with like one of the kids piggy banks but the cops were actually able to find him because they had a couple of items like on them but the car was left with all their stuff their house was totally trashed it was very violated yeah, that we wouldn't do I mean, that's, that's like, that's a Texas thing, right? Where it's like, you're just watching out for people. Like we have a really good sense of community.
that I envy, that I envy, because that's like, that's real. That's how you know it's real. Yeah, um, it was probably some people from New Jersey who pulled well, up in their driveway and started. They've been from Newark. Um, <laughs> no, but the thing is, like, I, I appreciate when people are rude and obnoxious here because, like, it's real, but also there's an affection behind it. Like, when someone tells you to fuck yourself while you're driving, like, you're offended, but then you're like, oh, but that was sweet of them. Well, maybe I should They noticed me. Yeah. <laughs> No, but then like I had a friend from California visiting and we went into a, a store to buy something and he was like, wow, that lady was kind of rude to us. I was like, really? She was so nice. <laughs> not, and I said that not because she was actually being nice, but because like she had an attitude, but you could tell behind the attitude that she cared. So like, I don't know. I like, I like people who have attitude as long as you're not a straight up asshole who's trying to make people's days worse. You know, it can be a form of affection. I, I agree there was actually a study done a while back about that like the endearment of like teasing people and yeah. you know calling somebody like a fat idiot or whatever and like that's something that like a lot of times like only people in your close circle do yeah. I know that's one of my love languages like I'm incredibly mean to all of my friends and they're mean right back to me it keeps us all humble it's actually pretty yes. good and I was hanging out with some Irish people years ago we got snowed in together in DC and they had a friend who was a little bit overweight and we go into this restaurant that was attached to the hotel because you could only go to places you could walk to and i remember the irish goes oh do you do you guys have a chair that will support him that's like big enough to support him and they're all laughing and i'm like oh my god you're not allowed to do that anymore <laughs> but really and then i mean he would turn around and give it right back and be like okay you're a kidney doctor but you're definitely an alcoholic and like they would just make fun of each other back and forth and it was like this loving camaraderie that they had that i feel like i i totally get what you're saying i don't know that you get a lot of that in texas unless you're friends with me yeah that's that's what i bring to the table that's fair so okay so we we've given texas a chance i might i might return to your state we'll see we'll see what happens um and if you come to newark i'll i'll make sure to protect you from uh whatever may happen i i mean i feel like now that i'm in juarez all the time i'm probably gonna be fine you know it's like shame if that's where I got killed, if like the cartel didn't take me out, like freaking yeah, no. Bozo from Newark took me out, Ugh. you'll be you'll be fine. And they only if something will only happen to you if you're dumb. Like I always tell people who visit Newark, like if you do the white people walk, <laughs> market, which is like you know you're walking slowly and you're looking around every corner. If you just walk with the purpose, you aren't gonna. Bother. Here's the thing: as a woman, I have prepared that. Like I have, I call it yeah. the murder walk. So anytime I'm having to walk through a bar with like bikers and like big dudes or whatever, I just do the most like intensely masculine murder walk and the seas part. So I actually think I'm I'm prepared. I didn't realize my whole life had prepared me for New Jersey. Yeah, but your day will come. Will come. So um, so now to business. So things have changed since we last talked a year and a half. Just a um, Yeah. So Row is no longer like. I mean, it's a thing, but it's it's not a thing like it was before. A thing in the history books, which yeah. is wild. Did you ever think we would see this day? No, no, yeah, same, I, did same. I did not at all. I thought it was a joke at first. Um, how did you react when you found out? Let's start with that. I had very mixed emotions because um, we had the leak. So I thought I was kind of mentally prepared for it. Um, I was actually at the National Right to Life conference, like they were having a convention and I was there and I was told the decision, like we we all kind of NPR was supposed to do a live interview with me, like within 30 minutes of it coming out. And so we had been kind of going back and forth, like, well, it's definitely going to be Monday. Like they're, they're not going to do it. I think it was Friday, right? That it happened. Um, and so when it happened, 
I think I was just completely shocked. I was in a room. Uh, it was a session that some students were taking. So I was in there and literally the person leading the session was like, oh my God, like, can you watch these kids? And I'm like, poor decisions are being made. To, yes, I will watch these children, please go. So he like goes running out of the room and I'm just kind of sitting there in shock, like absorbing it. And then I remember feeling like a upwelling of tears, but not celebratory tears, which I felt really ashamed of, quite honestly. Like, not that we've ever focused on Roe, but like I'm at this convention where literally people are like hugging and high-fiving and like sobbing because they're so happy. And I'm thinking, I've got to do an interview. I have to have cohesive thoughts. We knew this could happen, but I guess I just really didn't think it was actually going to. And so you'll enjoy this part. I went up to my room and I actually prayed a rosary. Um, I've been just not Catholic at all, but I learned to pray it a couple years ago and I find it very kind of like meditative. And I just felt something telling me I needed to do this. And so I did it and I calmed down and, you know, kind of, and I, and I think the conflicting emotions for me is I don't think we were ready to overturn Roe. I don't think the culture is ready for it at all. And so I think that doing something this extreme, it felt kind of like, this is the battle that leads to us losing the war. Like we're not, we don't have the yeah. systems in place. And so when, you know, we're just going to be seeing nothing but headlines of women dying and horrific things happening. Right. And is that going to ultimately lead to the codification of abortion? Like, and that kind of was my fear. And then on top of it, just all of the women, I think I hurt for them that for years, maybe they had some nuanced feelings of possible regret for their past abortions but then they would tell themselves probably well it's it's legal it can't be bad if it's legal and so the idea that like in that moment they were probably feeling this supreme kind of judgment being passed on their choices which you know right or wrong like it I don't know I just felt that energy of how hard it must have been for a whole lot of post-abortive people in general um in that moment and the fear that they were feeling and so I ended up making a video on our Instagram kind of talking about sitting in the tension and how it's just mm -hmm. such conflicting feelings and how I wish that, you know, me 10 years ago would have been like, yeah, we did it. Cause I was kind of naive. But once I became one of the people who was like trying to be boots on the ground and helping women and, you know, trying to help single moms get into shelters that are totally full and just the reality of the infrastructure stuff, it just not that ending a pregnancy is ever the solution, but I feel like we cut off supply without addressing demand. Yeah. And maybe we did that in the wrong order. And so it was actually funny because uh, ben Watson, Benjamin Watson, this football player, I guess saw my live. And then he recently asked me to review his book and he mentions my reaction in the front. And he's like, you know, among among her celebratory something, he describes it like that. She actually asked some thoughtful questions. And I was like, oh, I'm not going to correct Benjamin Watson, but like, I don't know if I would have described yeah. my in that moment as celebratory. Um, and I, and, and I admit that because I feel guilty about it. I feel like as a pro-life person, I know what I was supposed to be and what I wasn't like, did you have similar feelings or like, how did you feel in that moment? Yeah, no, I mean, my, I've been really challenged ever since because um, like on a fundamental level, like I recognize the personhood from conception and I like, it's my problem has always been not so much the legal question, not so much the, even the moral question, but the fact that like we're denying that when someone gets, when someone suffers an abortion, that like, this is a really dramatic action. The baby, all right, I believe the baby's gonna go to heaven. This is not the big, the, it's the least of my worries. Like, this is such a dramatic thing for a woman to go through, um, to live with. Um, what an impact it will have on the trajectory of your life. So like, 
not and it's not me judging a woman who makes that decision but it's to say like to deny the gravity of what's happening like that's a really scary thing to live in that denial and to create a culture that's based on a denial of a fact um so once this happened i had the same question as you like are we able to sustain the possibility of abortion being totally you know out of the picture at least medically speaking you know back alleys is another story but and i think the sustainability there's an economic question but also there's this moral or spiritual question because our culture is super utilitarian. Like the point, you know, we judge human life based on how useful, how efficient or productive you are. It's late stage capitalism. Yeah. So it's it's an economic legal ideal. Like it's it's codified in our economic system. But again, the way that we live our lives, the way we treat our family, our friends, random people, like I think it's really shaped by this utilitarian logic. So to have a law that's saying, you know, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter the sacrifices you have to make, like life is fundamentally a gift and that we should be ready to rearrange our whole lives around the, the possibility of this gift, you know, receiving that gift. Um, do we have the means, do we have the tools to say yes to that? I'm very skeptical. And when, if like, if an individual woman comes to me and says, should I get an abortion? I'm going to say no. And I, I'm willing to help you to be in that position to say yes to the gift. But what of somebody who has no community, who has no one to support them? What are they going to do? Um, so more of an incentive for people to step up. But can we assume that everyone's going to do that? Everyone's going to. And, and that's the thing. What about this law would suddenly lead us to believe that the government, who's never really taken the necessary actions in this way, would somehow be motivated now that they again were able to just cut off supply, like? Mm -hmm they've had the chance to create a more equitable society for women with paid family leave and assistance with housing and childcare and other things like that and have, have really failed horribly. And so why would we suddenly think that people are going to show up? Like people haven't been showing up in these communities for a long time, like you said. I mean, the people who are, the, okay, I take that back. There are plenty of communities who do, but yeah. even then there's a limit to it. And I think that a lot of people ignore that side of it. You know, it's like, well, I'll just give to this church and I'll assume they're taking care of things. Like, First of all, not all Catholic charities even um, are connected to one another. And so one that might be doing great in this particular you know, county is, is totally different than another one where if we have a pregnant mom and we're like, she is literally sleeping in the car you know, with her other child and not being able to make it to doctor's appointments and things like that. Like, I guess being realistic about it and being the person who's made those calls here in Dallas County, which is incredibly mm -hmm. affluent, wealthy county and not being able to find those resources, it's just like, okay, what, where is the incentive now to do that? And I would also argue that you and I are kind of on the younger spectrum of pro-lifers, or at least we used to be. Now we're kind of no, like middle-aged, that's bad for us. But um, we also know the reality of the abortion pill. And I mean, and that was something that just in my mind, I was like, okay, that's what it's switching to. So now it's going to be people getting these through black market type ways. And I think the comment I made on New Wave Feminist was like, a lot of y'all have never sent drugs to your friends through the mail and it shows. Like I have been to Colorado, I know things allegedly. So like, I just think it's naive to sit here and say that like, you don't think these abortion pills are going to be mailed, you know, hidden in an envelope to every woman who wants it or a pregnant person. And then on top of that, the idea that you, 
are, I, I kind of called this too, you're going to see counties and stuff that are basically saying we're not going to enforce it. And that was always my fear with Roe is that it was going to be like jaywalking laws where it's like every once in a while somebody gets popped for it. But for the most part, people look the other way. And I say that because of my time doing sidewalk advocacy and literally standing in front of abortion clinics and seeing, you know, young, very young women being like kind of dragged in by their elbow by a boyfriend or father and the other advocates on the sidewalk calling the police and saying, come out here, a forced abortion is happening. And even when something like that, which is illegal, was taking place, nobody would show up. So why would we assume that anyone's going to enforce this stuff now? It's just unrealistic. And I feel like it was done so that politicians could say, we did this and, you know, whatever, but show me how it actually helps women and children. Like, I didn't see any new initiatives, even after the Texas bill, the heartbeat bill, that suddenly was expanding Medicaid and helping with housing, childcare, transportation, um, and healthcare, which are our four main things that it seems like most pregnant people come to us for so yeah no and i mean so we agree on this point that there's there's a need for a cultural revolution to um to really enable women to feel prepared to welcome this gift but like what do you say to people who say that you know culture is downstream from from law or politics that like having this law in place is going to start to change the cultural mentality, the way that we, you know, we act when we find out a woman is in a, you know, an unplanned or a crisis pregnancy. I mean, I hope they're right at this point. That's all I can do. I, I've always viewed it the other way. I think that I mean, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> creating the societal, you know, safety nets and uh, true systemic change, and then also humanizing the unborn child. We haven't really done a great job at that. And so, you know, you have the people with like the abortion victim photography and stuff, but people write that off. It's the shock and awe. They're desensitized to it at this point. It doesn't really work. And then even when it comes to just basic biology and medical schools and stuff, like people are trying to placate the abortion views in a lot of ways. So we have a whole society that doesn't actually humanize the unborn child in the womb. And I think that that it, it personally, I've always been on the culture side. So it made more sense to me. Like, how do we get funny, entertaining, highly intelligent people like out there, you know, doing what Hollywood's doing when it comes to the abortion narrative. How, because here's the thing, I think most Americans know that abortion is not a desirable thing. Nobody wants an abortion. This is something that like is coming through a series of breakdowns that have happened. And I think even the most pro-choice people understand that this is not like a fun, fun thing that anybody wants to do. They see it as a necessary evil. So in so many ways, what's the saying that you snatch victory from the or defeat from the mouth of victory. It's something like that. Like in so many ways, I feel like it was kind of handed to it. Like we have science on our side, we have ethics on our side, morality, spirituality, like all of these different things, biology, and somehow we fumbled it like incredibly badly culturally where so many people, you know, pro-choice is the default position. They won't even label themselves pro-life because if you're pro-life, that means you, you know, hate women and want to control things and are anti-sex and all of these other narratives that have been lumped in there. And I just think like if we had had just like some normal people, I joke all the time that instead of these pro-life organizations giving out grants for like med students and stuff, which is awesome, but like, let's give out grants to some comms people. Like, are you going into PR? Like, let's put you through college because we yeah. can really use help in that area uh, because the culture side, I feel like has been neglected. It's been very political mm. and um, everything has been put behind the law. So what do you think? Do you think these laws are going to affect the birth rate and abortion rate? Mm, I don't know, maybe, but that's not, yeah, like, I'm like you, I think I'm more interested in the cultural change, like, I'm more interested in, um, I don't know, because, like, I'm not going to change America, I can only change the spheres where I work, where I live, um, 
And that's where I put all my eggs. Like, I'm not the kind of person who's advocating for policy change. Not that I'm against it. Um, but for those who are focused on the on like the influence of law, yeah, like we can't change this law in isolation. There has to be all the other stuff you're saying about, you know, uh, making sure women who are in an unplanned having an unplanned pregnancy like have the resources that they need. Um, but I don't know. Like I, the other question like about morality, like this is like this is important to me because that's like that's what I study. Like I study moral theology, so. I see that, like, first of all, we have to start with the fact that America, morally speaking, is very puritanical. Like, the foundation is coming from, like, you know, the pilgrims who were Puritans and had this very dualistic sense, either you're saved or you're damned. You're on the good side or the bad side. Like, there's no really room for nuance. And you see that amongst religious people. You also see it with, like, secular, you know, social justice warriors, whatever. Um, so, I don't know. I'm always a little, like, cautious when i see people making appeals to our moral conscience because like when you have these kind of stereotypical pro-lifers who are like yeah this is a murder this is wrong we can't promote we can't uh, you know support this injustice and it's like okay first of all a woman who does decide to, to get an abortion i'm not going to be quick to point the finger and say well you're immoral like yeah it's not a, a morally good thing but you know we all have um we all have our gray areas like sometimes we do make bad decisions and then we come to regret it later and if you believe in god like you know that there's there's mercy there's always forgiveness um but like to harp so much on this the moral side of it it's like we live in a very like our moral conscience as a country is very strange so i'm very skeptical about those appeals and i feel the same way like on the far left when you see people like canceling someone for using the wrong word or for like making one wrong move. It's like, okay, morally speaking, we're not, is anyone truly pure? Can we create a, a system, a culture that expects everyone to be totally morally pure? And that's where like, I understand people who say like, keep a more abortion safe, rare and legal because like, I don't know, should there be room for people I don't know like this is where it's tricky like should should women who understand like yeah this is not a good thing but right now i, I don't want to say yes to this gift should they be able to go to a doctor and do it should they have to go in the back of an alley and do it like i think i mean I if know. we accept the premise and the scientific scientific reality that it's a human being i mean we wouldn't keep any other type of violence against a human being safely going rare right like we wouldn't justify mm -hmm. trafficking or these other things i mean well i I take that back. There are people who are trying to legalize aspects of that, certainly. But for the most part, if it, I do think you get into this place where it is either a human being or it's not a human being, right? That like that's no revelation. That's what it's always been. But realizing that we base the humanity of the unborn on wantedness is a huge part of it, and it has to go beyond wantedness, how we feel towards this other human being. And so, you know, just because somebody doesn't believe it's fully human because it's not wanted, yeah. Um, I think that that that's kind of the issue, right? Is that we're not, I, I understand moral relativism. And I think that there's a lot of ways where people will justify certain types of killing. We've certainly done it with the death penalty. We do it with self-defense, killing cases of self-defense. But here we have a completely innocent human life. And so the, I have found that the people who make the best or the, the loudest academics and arguers of abortion rights, um, 
tend to be some of the most highly intelligent because the level of moral, like just gymnastics, mental gymnastics that you have to do to be able to justify this is so extreme. Whereas I think at a core level, most people understand this is a sad thing. And I would say also as an agnostic, I don't know that this human being goes anywhere. I, I see that there are human beings who, you know, the fact that any of us are here on this planet right now is a fucking miracle, right? Like we have survived dinosaurs and plagues and holocausts and genocides and everything else. Um, You know, your great grandfather could have been in a car accident or something and you wouldn't be here. Like the fact that any of us are here in this moment in time existentially, I think is kind of amazing. And so I do from an agnostic perspective of kind of not knowing if we just go into nothingness. Like to me, this is a irreplaceable human life. And I think that's actually what causes me to kind of take it more seriously when I have a woman call me who's considering abortion, because mm. I wish I could believe that it's just a little baby goes to heaven, but I don't, I don't know. Interesting. That I no, that's, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. Because like I, I understand that people who say like personally, I'm morally opposed, but I wouldn't want to impose that belief on everyone. But the fact that we are talking about another human being who, number one, is innocent, which is different from the death penalty, assuming the person's guilty, but also who can't defend themselves, like, that's where I think you find a way out of, like, the kind of relativist position. Um, but I don't know, like, still, I do struggle with, like, these appeals to moral consciousness, because, again, in America, it's very strange, like, we do have a weird moral consciousness, but also the, like, again, the, like the typical pro, like neocon pro-lifers who harp on this particular issue, but don't allow this, this sense of morality, their moral compass to extend to the bigger picture, the whole, the consistent life ethic. It makes their moral witness less compelling, less credible. I would agree. Yeah. I mean, I think you have on one side, the progressive side, which I tend to align with on all of the other issues, right? And most of them. And and this idea that consent is very important. You have this human being that didn't even consent to exist, and now it's not consenting, obviously, to, to be terminated. Um, that's the challenge for them. But then on the other side, yeah, that puritanical kind of thinking of conservatives where they don't go much further, and they don't realize, you know, you were talking about a woman who makes this decision from a place of crisis. Like, there is such a thing as like societal coercion. So I don't even necessarily think it's the boyfriend or the parents or someone else in, in the pregnant person's life being like, you're going to terminate. I think that sometimes it's the fact that milk is like $6 a gallon and I, you know, have other mouths to feed. And so they truly feel like they are making the merciful choice because this child's going to die if I bring this new child into the world. And I think that most pregnant people also have a very real understanding because the, you know, the right is always just going to say, well, what about adoption? Like, but yeah. most pregnant people inherently, women inherently, especially tend to know that there is going to be some bond that is created yeah. over nine months. And as traumatic as an abortion experience might be, the idea of placing their child is so much more extreme. And we just like slap this, you know, yeah. really, you know, adoptions, the loving options type label on it without even acknowledging the nuance of that. And we had one of our board members as a first mom, and she was actually in a Facebook group where she talked about um, there was this one and it's just like thousands of, of birth moms, first moms in this group, right? And somebody had made a post that said, if I were to get pregnant again, um, I would have an abortion next time. And she said, nobody commented below it, but it got like thousands of likes, like just solidarity there because it was so traumatic for women to just place their child. And I was talking recently in this research group that I'm in, the, you know, about this idea that I think 
pro-lifers feel like they need adoption as this pressure release valve because otherwise we're total monsters we're, we're we truly are forced birthers and like then you have to stick with this for the rest of your life type thing and so we give it as an option which i think it should be an option yeah. obviously but i think like we do the adoption triad the adoptive parents the adoptee and the first mom all a huge disservice when we paint it as this lovely thing and amy comey barrett definitely did that you know and kind of her statements on row was like oh well just you know adoption and it's like come on and and i think that's the thing we get into these abstract arguments with people where we talk about laws or policies or all these other things but the human being that you're talking to, right? Um, you know, you said the thing earlier about there's so many people who would say, well, I would personally never have an abortion, but who am I to tell somebody else what to do? That's a perfect example of this because I feel like there is so much privilege wrapped up in that statement. Like I would never have one. Why wouldn't you have one? Like, tell me right now, why wouldn't you have one? Well, it probably would be traumatic for me and I would always regret it. And I'd always wonder how old this child, you know, would have been and what their life would have been like and how it would have affected my family and the rest of my life. And there's so many reasons that the person saying that wouldn't do it, but it also probably signifies that they have the means not to do it, right? They aren't going to get kicked out of their home. They aren't going to be homeless or without healthcare or, you know, lose their job or any of these other things why do they think that person, this, you know, imaginary person who I'm not going to tell them what to do, yeah. doesn't have that same heart and those same fears and those same regrets. But oftentimes that when we just come from the apologetics or argument standpoint, we're not taking in the totality of human beings. And it's one thing when the pro-choice side doesn't do it. I think it's very hard for me when pro-lifers don't do that and just slap yeah. adoptions, a loving option on things, because we are in the humanizing business. Like we are here to humanize human beings. And so when we start disregarding people's humanity and boiling them down to talking points or policies or whatever else, like I, I find it really hypocritical. Yeah. And like the other thing that, you know, after the decision was made really started to make me question is when we frame it around the problem of the rights of the baby. I like I have an issue on two levels because first of all, rights discourse is itself like it's questionable because like, why do we have rights? Like, why do we have a right to anything? Why are we like, are we really entitled to anything? Um, I don't know. Like I, in that sense, I'm, I'm critical of the enlightenment tradition. Cause it's like, why do you have, I don't know. Like, why do you have rights? But also with like, and this is where the, the question of God, you know, complicates the way we're going to respond to this. Cause like, I would say the only reason someone has rights is because God gave them to you. Like no one just, like you don't decide to to come into existence. You don't automatically just have rights because magically they appear. But then also like I'm, so like that's the one reason I'm like, okay, I don't want to center this around the rights of the baby. It's also that, yeah, like I do believe that the baby is going to go to heaven and I'm more worried about the woman who's going to have to pay for the consequences for this decision, which is really heavy. Like but I, I find that interesting. If the yeah. baby goes to heaven and you have this certainty, then what does it matter? It's avoided so much suffering of the human condition. And if anything, that should, you should be incredibly pro-choice, maybe even pro-abortion, like in an Andrea Yates type way. You remember her, the mom who killed her five kids so that, you yeah. know, the, the security and salvation, right? She gets them all to accept Christ, drowns them in a bathtub because she doesn't want them to lose their salvation at any point. She wants them to go straight to heaven. Like that's kind of the path mm -hmm. you're going down there. And mm -hmm. if anything, Tell tell women that make them feel better about this trauma. But what? But I'm saying about the woman, like the baby doesn't have to suffer. The woman has to suffer. But why would she suffer if the baby didn't suffer? One, because the action you did is against, like again, and I'm I'm relying on my you know my framework with like rooted in a belief in God. Like God doesn't will that for you. So like to make a decision that's so contrary to God's will, like 
one is going to do damage to you spiritually, but also on a psychological level is probably going to be really painful. So that's why I'm like, okay, I'm not as worried about the baby. I'm worried about the woman, the state of her soul, but also psychologically, how that's going to impact her life, her psyche. Um, I don't know. What, what do you say? I, mean, I, I agree with that in the sense that I'm very worried how it's going to affect her psyche because yeah. I think she just destroyed an irreplaceable human being and not just any human being, but her own child. And not that she didn't have valid reasons for consenting to this procedure happening, you know, within her body. But I think that absolutely messes people up. Like, um, but I, I think more so because I do come from a non-religious stance. And so in my mind, like there, there is no kind of silver lining to this that you get to be reunited at one point. I mean, maybe I would hope so. I, I, again, I'm not an atheist. I'm agnostic. So I love that a journey for you. And I wish I had it for myself. I wish I had that same certainty. I don't. So that's why it kind of ups the ante a little bit in my mind. And so I have to come back to just human rights. I think morally, ethically, just societally, we have agreed that human rights are something that should exist, but we're denying them to a huge population that is human. And I would argue that it's from a late stage capitalist perspective, mm -hmm. by definition, these pregnancies are unplanned for. And so knowing the you know financial strain it could take if we did offer the services, I think it's a lot easier for government entities and societies in general to say, you know, take this $30 pill or get this $500 abortion instead of potentially up to 18 years of this being, you know, what we deem a drain on the government, right? So I think that there is absolutely this extreme like capitalist move to make sure abortion is always accessible. And we package it as, no, this is just all about your rights and this is about you. But I mean, come on, we know that's bullshit. When companies are paying $4,000 for you to go out of state to have your abortion, I actually did the, I crunched the numbers for, there's a place here uh, in Texas. I don't know, do y'all have Dick's Sporting Goods? Yes, we do. And I think that's- I've never been to one. The funniest name ever. Um, so I went and I looked at like their minimum wage and I took like the lowest amount for minimum wage. I looked at their maternity policy because they don't have family leave. It's just maternity. So what that would entail if, you know, say the pregnant woman in this case takes six weeks off, they have to hire a replacement for her, then her job is guaranteed and it's unpaid by the way. So even with all of that, with doing the numbers on the very low end, it still came out to like 5,600 versus the 4,000 that they'll pay for you to go out of state, which might not seem like enough for them to support, you know, abortion. But the fact of the matter is when you have thousands of employees who could potentially, you know, use this, like it, it does affect your bottom dollar. And knowing that it's not like they started some fun on the other end to pay for you know maternity leave or anything i just come on stop i people need this it is all about money all the time and they need to kind of follow that and stop thinking that it has to do even to some degree with anyone's moral or ethics like it's financial but why do you believe we have rights though like where do our rights come from I mean, I, I guess I go to the golden rule, right? Treat other people the way you want to be treated. And so as a human collective, we have decided that human beings should have human rights, except preborn human beings. Because like, that's where I struggle because it's like, if we agree as a society that, you know, we everybody should have rights, treat everybody how you want to be treated. I'm afraid that that can become, yeah, it can become arbitrary very quickly. Like if you think about the three fifths rule, um, and, and then look at what we have today about unborn life. Yeah. I don't know. Like it's I'm just, that's all, that's all based on wantedness and the value we place on yeah. another human being. So that's what I'm saying. Like the goal of human rights should be to acknowledge all human beings, like from conception to death, right? Like womb to tomb, 
Um, and, and that's why it seems like such a weird disconnect for me having so many progressive views where I'm part of a lot of these like movements and groups and clubs that are so bleeding heart and care so much for people in their vulnerability. If you struggle with mental health, if you're a veteran, if you're housing insecure, like whatever other, you know, social justice thing there is, we're not saying, oh, you're too, you're too expensive. You know, some John, what is, what is his name? He does the whole essay about how we should eat the poor to oh, cross or swift or yeah like that type of mentality right like they don't have that they say no in your vulnerability in you know as you're going through this mental health, health struggle that's when i'm going to use my strength and rights and privilege to help you mm-hmm. except when it comes to the unborn they say okay in your you know lack of development at this stage in your vulnerability i'm going to use that as an excuse to dehumanize you and kill you and that just blows my mind because it's just so wildly inconsistent from the rest of what they believe in and you know up until about the 70s like this was a very progressive issue and then enters you know a whole kind of cast of players that sort of co-opt the left and made it very pro-abortion but to me, that's why the consistent life ethic is the only one that's truly consistent. We need to be opposing the death penalty and war and obviously trafficking torture. We need to extend that into the womb by also defending that human life because we know it's human. It's not anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And the, this brings me to what I wanted to ask you about your brand of feminism. Because um, I, I think it was maybe it was like three years ago, I wrote a thing pretty much about you and, and new wave feminists for first things magazine saying how like your brand of feminism is kind of fulfilling what john paul ii wrote about um what he called the feminine genius and developing a quote-unquote new feminism that recognizes the unique gifts that women have to offer and that's not kind of like not basing equality upon neutralizing women or turning you guys into men but really saying yes like you have the same dignity you have value you have contributions to make to society and they are unique. They're not um, collapsible into the same, you know, kinds of contributions that men would make. So yeah, like I'm interested to understand how you view feminism, how you understand like the gifts, the, 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 the dignity that the unique dignity that women have and what they can offer, what you guys can offer society. Yeah. I mean, I would say from just a biological perspective as a natal female, right? Like there is so much that our bodies are capable of that. I think, is phenomenal and we don't we certainly don't talk enough about in society like in sixth grade you know you're handed some tampons and deodorant and okay you're gonna have a period whatever you might get hair that's it but truly like the amazing qualities that our bodies are capable of from ovulation to gestation lactation menstruation all of them right like they're they're incredibly mind-blowing and the fact that my body that has always been female has been able to create cobbled together two penises like that's wild like i've made penises that's a really cool thing that my body knew how to do that's kind of badass and i i think that you know you had asked me before we started the interview about kind of femininity and i always recoiled at that because i'm not particularly feminine i guess like by the classical sense of it i paint my nails and stuff and i wear makeup when i have to which is not tonight and nobody can see this, but I have like scrubby clothes and a baseball hat on. Cause that's the type of day I had, but like, so I wouldn't qualify myself as like feminine. And I remember I had this former intern who had asked me for a reference letter and, and I gave it to him and he gets into this doctorate program he really wanted to be in. And he's thanking me and he was leaving me like a video message. And he goes, you're just one of the most like, um, feminine, uh, fe- yeah, feminine 
people that I know and just your your overall just like femininity is and he's like stumbling on it because he's trying to find a way to say feminist and like but in like an adjective type way yeah. and so he just kept saying femininity and I was cracking up and I'm like shut up we both know <laughs> like people don't use that term to describe me super often like I tend to be not that um and then I was relaying this to another friend who was a big fan of Pope John Paul II, actually. And she made the comment that, like, I have a really skewed view of what femininity is. And she's like, femininity to me is being courageous and bold and, like, fighting for the vulnerable and doing everything in your power to protect those who are weaker than you. And would you not want that label applied to you? And I was like, well, I don't think that's what he meant. But also, yes, I would totally want that label applied to me. And that version of femininity, which is very different than I think what culture, you know, that we're meek and docile and, and whatever else. Like, obviously, that's not what true femininity is. Um, and so all of that together, I think, like, probably is at the core of our feminism. This is truly about equality. It's about human rights. It's about using our privilege to stand up for the vulnerable that are the most ignored right now in society. Yeah, and I mean, John Paul does say that in that um, the document he wrote that like he's not talking so much about like femininity in this like performative, you know, affective sense, but like because again, biological women have the capacity to hold life, even if you never do give birth. Like in a way, it gives you a certain intuition into like the value of of life, especially the lives of those who are vulnerable. So like to to take an interest in that to advocate for that like this is one way that women can really express their feminine genius and that's not to say that men don't do that or can't do that but it's like women are more disposed to that so in a sense i as a man can learn that from you i can develop that virtue but like you're the one who has the special insight into that and then as a man like i have special insights that you can learn from as well but yeah it's like if we just reduce it to like how girly are you like that's not really interesting it's right. what again like what real gifts what real uh, virtues can you contribute to humanity so that we all can benefit we all can learn and unfortunately kind of third wave feminism it did tend to morph into the male normative right and making that kind of the goal like how do we compete with men i think it's how do we settle right for that level of equality i would argue that had we encourage men to raise our standard and raise our standard in the regard of being more compassionate, being um, more humanizing of other human beings, right? When we look at all the injustices that are happening in the world, that's kind of at the core of most of them is just this dehumanization. I think if we had a female president versus a male president, and especially if the female president happens to be a mother, um, am I as worried that she's, you know, has access to the nuclear codes as I am the man? Like, not at all, because I think that she does have more of an understanding that that could be my child that yeah. could die or be harmed in this. And so there is something, um, I think, inherent about that, that we should have invited men into rather than lowering to kind of the standard that doesn't have those skills and competing for a lot of times who can have the most sex without any type of emotional connection and <laughs> exploit the other the most and get whatever we can get from another person, right? Like there's just, because that's it. And I, I'm absolutely making a generalization because that is not all men. There are like amazing yeah. men out there. I'm married to one. Again, I made two penises with my body. I've created a couple, I hope, but we actually like competed with the most base level man, right? Like a yeah. rush to the bottom. And that's what we've seen uh, my partner, Karina, actually made the comment about that, that when we cross back and forth, because uh, we have a shelter in Juarez, Mexico right now for migrant moms and children. And when you're crossing back over, a lot of times you'll get in this line for like two hours. 
And the men, for the most part, are pretty, they don't have anything to prove. And they're like, like, oh, I'll chat you up a little bit and then let you go. But we hate getting the female border patrol agents because it's like they feel like they have to be the hardest mm -hmm. to make up for their gender in these roles. And I know that's just one example of it. But I mean, they are the ones who are kind of the biggest assholes. And so you're always like, Ugh, avoid her because she's going to have to be trying to prove this like masculine energy to take up the space mm -hmm. rather than using her feminine genius like in those spaces that could be equally as effective because again it doesn't mean we're weaker yeah no and that being said what like what gifts or what contributions do you think men can and should be bringing to the table today like what's most needed from us right now i mean i think that just acknowledging even the biological privileges y'all have with strength like there is something in most men that is a protective quality you know it's I hate cockroaches. Let's like circle back to why I hate Houston, right? Because I have flying cockroaches. If there's a cockroach in my house, my husband immediately is like, damn it, I know this is on me, right? He's going to jump up. He's going to do something about that. If if there's something that frightens him, I dairy, I don't know. I'm just joking. He's lactose intolerant. But anyway, I'll be the one who, who does it. Like we have a very balanced thing, but there is this like, I've noticed a very protective nature in him. If there's a bump in the night, like he tends to be the one who's gonna get shot or whatever and I get to be interviewed by Keith Morrison on Dateline which is very exciting because that's one of my life goals and so I think that that just inherent kind of protectiveness is not something that should be shit on which it is all the time right that like oh chivalry is and yeah chivalry can be bad if there's strings attached and I'm doing this for you because I expect something in return but I don't think all men have that. I think a lot of men tend to want to help and use their strength and privileges to help in that way. I also think that when it comes to the way we've emasculated a lot of men, that contributes to the abortion culture because so many guys right now, when you know their girlfriend says, Oh my gosh, I think I'm pregnant, rather than being honest and saying, you know, I want you to keep this child, like this is our child, this is my DNA, this is this unique human being. A lot of times, first of all, they're either going to be shitheads and be like, here's 500 bucks, like call me when you're healed up, that type of dude. Or they're going to say, you know, this is completely on you. Basically like putting the onus on the female all the time. Um, and all she wants to hear him say is like, I'm here for you and congratulations, we can do this, we can have this child together, right? Like she wants that support. Yeah. But so often the proper politically correct response that the male will give makes her think he's not really in it and then the fear comes in of I'm going to be alone he's not that enthusiastic about it he's going to leave me I'm going to be on my own so those are just a couple ways that I think men could step up yeah and it's I don't know like you see that a lot of this like this like hyper masculinity heroic masculinity kind of rhetoric that's becoming popular on the internet right now it's like yeah a lot of it is toxic and it's yeah, yeah. dangerous but there's, you know, there's a true impulse there. Like, how do we maintain this protective, courageous impulse and channel it towards, again, towards self-gift, towards service to another rather than this kind of self-indulgent, you know, performance of masculinity. But no, I, I think there's definitely something there. Um, so um, before we wrap up, you have a reputation for um, writing about some of the weird saints Um we both we both are fans of Mary of Egypt. Tell us <laughs> tell us something about uh tell us something about Mary. Why do you like her? Okay, so first of all, I'm gonna say I wrote about a number of saints. Yes. This is all this is one long disclaimer. I wrote about a number of saints and 
so the people who started reading it, like basically my editor said, because I wrote about uh, St. Philomena first for my Facebook. And he's like, do you want to write from a former Protestant now agnostic perspective about some other saints and do it in like a drunk history style like you did this one? I promise I will edit these to make them appropriate for publication. And I was like, yes, I'm like, let's do it. And so the first couple out of the gate were really cool. I think I did like St. Monica and it just happened to be her feast day. And it was weird, spooky Catholic witchcraft stuff like you guys have all the time, right? We're just like weird stuff happens where I'm like, oh my gosh, like I didn't even know that. I randomly picked one that like I kind of felt drawn to and then all of a sudden it's lining up with the feast day. That said, y'all have feast days every single day. So it's like, whatever. But um, then, <laughs> so throughout the time, I'm like making them interesting and I'm talking about all the martyrs and all this type of stuff. I talked about sexuality and virginity and kind of like the pedestal that was put on. So they weren't salacious, but they were done in a bit of an irreverent, I think highly entertaining way. People like them. And if you read my first one where I played it a little safe, maybe by the sixth or seventh one, it was a little more, you know what this is, like you clicked through, this is this is on you at that point. So by the time I get to Mary of Egypt, my editor uh, was in Rome and they had just gone into lockdown and he was just frustrated with the world because they went back into lockdown again and he's like, eh. And so I do the same thing I always do, this very irreverent drunk history where he would usually go in and pull out all of the things that went too far because they're not my saints. I don't know. This isn't my church, yeah. not my, my circus, right? And so I don't maybe have the level of reverence I needed. So I write about St. Mary of Egypt, who is fascinating, by the way, yes. um, because she was a prostitute. And um, I actually, the whole joke was that she was a very bad sex worker um, because she would say that sometimes she would turn down money because she just enjoyed the sex so much. And so <laughs> did I call her like, the first big slutty saint, like something like that. Yes, I did. And I thought that was hilarious. And clearly that was going to be edited out. But one of the things she did when she has her big conversion is she's going, I guess there was a pilgrimage that was happening, going to the certain yes. town. She's like, yeah. well, that's going to be a lot of sausage. Yeah. That's new. So she like <laughs> hunts down this particular pilgrimage and she's trying to pray on these men. And as she tries to go into the church, this force field, supernatural force field, like comes down and blocks her out of the church. And I called it a holy cock block. And I thought for sure that was going to be taken out. For sure. I was positive. Did they publish like, that? Mm, yeah. So I oh, was going to wow. be, yeah, no, now you understand. Now I, I was like, what could she have said? And here's the thing. When you get canceled, but you agree with the canceling, like that's also a weird thing because I was like, 100%. That was inappropriate. <laughs> like I expected my editor to come back and be like, Destiny, what synonyms can we find for cock block? That, you know, like I thought for sure that's what was going to happen. It did not. It was like the next day it's up on the site and I'm like, oh my God, you accidentally put the unedited one it was like no I think it's fine and whatever people know what they're getting now so the people who read it were also like okay whatever uh they like I said it was the lobster in the water type thing where they were used to kind of oh my god I'm looking at it now and it's still there I can't believe it's still there someone needs to call that publication <laughs> say please take it down so nothing <laughs> happens for like two months and then two months in some priest in Ireland or something finds it and he's like this is blasphemous and blah 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 and how dare this person and who is this and this is the reason this particular publication which I keep redacting the name because I don't know if you want me to like they this is why they're relevant now and da, 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 they go on and on and then this whole thread happens where I'm looking at all these profile pictures of priests like basically calling me like just the Satan incarnate and I'm like this feels weird because I am kind of on my own faith journey and so like I don't like priests being very 
mean to me like I that's not my particular kink and so then like I'm reading them and at one point like Taylor Marshall jumps in and he's like oh that's why he yeah, said that this, about you this is blasphemous trash was, which is not I was my... always trying to figure out why what prompted him to say no, that and I deserved mind. it I can't Taylor Marshall I think he's the worst but also like I did deserve that which is why it's my cover photo <laughs> on my Twitter now um Rod Dreher went after me which that one really hurt because he used to be a Dallas Morning News columnist and I had like even written a blurb about him one time for the Dallas Morning News so I was like this kind of sucks that some people that I did actually it was just wild and the publication evidently never took it down no it's right here um, I'm reading it now so by like that afternoon I made the offer to step down and, <laughs> and I was like I don't have to write their for I mean a little bit but also I was like I don't have to write for y'all anymore no big deal and they were like no we're gonna defend you on this and blah 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 48 hours later they were like hey remember that offer you made us <laughs> like, can we take you up on that and I was like yeah that's fine so um no. that was the end of that I think she was the patron, the patron saint of the free the nipple campaign <laughs> we're not here to smash the patriarchy we're here to smash the patriarchy I don't even remember I don't even mean, remember that you're triggering me right now stop reading it, it. it was, I can't I, believe I, it's still up yeah I'm shocked do you have a subscription or is it behind the paywall um yeah no I don't have a subscription so it's it's accessible to the public <laughs> Huh. A mistake was made there. Oh my god. <laughs> this I mean it's hilarious. Like knowing as if you like meant it as blasphemy, then I'd be scandalized, but knowing who you are and that it's like humorous, like I, I can laugh. Like it's just really funny. Yeah, it, I mean, it's I true. Nothing but mad respect for Saint Mary Vijay. Yeah, and I also funny. because I had done so many consecrated murdered virgin saints, like I like the fact that I finally got to talk about a slutty saint who was like this badass and did cool stuff and went and lived in the woods and grew all her body hair out. And I'm like, this is the feminist I've been looking for the whole time, like in my saint journey. So it was yeah. it was not meant with any ill intent, but I also again not my circus, not my monkeys. And so I understand if people hold these saints very dear and I was disrespectful and I can't remember if I apologized. <laughs> it doesn't sound like something I would do, but maybe I did. I don't know. All I know is that was the end of my Saint journey. Uh, yeah, I wrote a thing about Saint Agatha who got her boobs chopped off. And I, I, I like made a tamer. I had an original draft, which was a little bit spicy. Because so in Sicily on her feast day, because you know, horny Italians, they make cakes shaped like virgin breasts and they're That's very nice. tasty. So like I said something about- Are they at least like dolce de leche? They're ricotta cheese, <laughs> as we say in New Jersey. It's ricotta with chocolate <laughs> chips and lemon. And then like- um. That sounds delicious. Yeah, like a kind of cakey, shortbread kind of like cake part. It's, it is delicious. But I, like I said, like, you know, you know, kind of freaky Catholics making a, a treat out of, you know, her severed breasts and it wasn't like too salacious but these like really trad people were like this is blasphemous you're talking about her breasts and I'm like well that is what it is i feel like here's the thing if i i would never become a saint but if i ever was like please do something hilarious like that right like i feel like saint agatha has to be like that's badass they make straight up titty cakes for my day what do they do for y'all's days like she's debating the other saints in heaven like oh they go and pray on your day that's awesome yeah. <laughs> they don't have it's a breath okay the cake it's it's a better way what sucks is that after they chopped her boobs off they threw her back in jail she didn't even die like she had to wait like two more days to die it's like at least put her out of her misery there but 
Yeah. I don't know. I'm from Texas, and with the heat here, I will say to some degree, there are times I've considered it. Okay. Like just, just Brandon Tinum. That's what my husband always says. Do you remember that movie with Hillary Swank? I'm like, I'm just gonna ace bandage these puppies. Down. Like I'm done with them. They fed the people they were supposed to feed. I'm I'm done now. So I kind of, I don't know. But yeah, probably probably with no uh, numbing agent. That was horrific for her. So yeah. No. Um, Maybe she doesn't appreciate the boob cakes. I don't know. I guess when you go to heaven, if God's real, then you'll get to find out one day. That should be the first person you talk to and the first yeah, question you ask. I don't keep that in mind. Um, but no, on the Mary of Egypt tip. So no, I was telling you before, there's a, this really great book called The Harlots of the Deserts. It's all these, you know, all these sluts who found Jesus. and Sluts in and, sand. That's what it would have been called if I wrote it. <laughs> So Mary's in there, and there's another one who's very cool. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce her name. It's, I think it's Thais, Thais, Thais. It's T H A I S, and she was another one in Egypt. She, like, I think she was a nun earlier on, and then she got seduced into like being a prostitute. And the monk who used to be her spiritual father was like so sad that he went to the brothel where she worked as a dressed up as a client to to get her back so like she starts you know doing her thing takes everything off and then she looks into his face and sees who it is and they both start bawling and then so why did he let it get that far like i would to be a fly on the wall i would have been like no no keep it on the dl it's me like i wouldn't want to see well, my baby girl well, <laughs> yeah i don't know i don't know but but it's no like i what i really but, find but then it. she becomes did you say she became a nun again Yes. So she went back to the desert, you know, did her penance. But but no, like what I, I liked about this particular book I mentioned is that like the author, who is also a nun, was saying that these women, when they, you know, came back to God again, it's not that they um that they turned away from their past life and their, you know, their their desire for love, but rather they kind of like they they found the ultimate fulfillment to this this desire that they had so it's not that like you're giving something up but you're like redirecting it so it was i don't know like it was a real appreciation for what is, I, I i'm sure you would know this thing i think it was saint Teresa maybe of avila, avila? is that the one where they have the statue of her where she's wait i want to show you even though the people can't see it that's her and her ecstasy okay yeah 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 and the actual like statues that they have of that like it's a very orgasmic face she's making right it is and so, that's where i had written about just kind of like female sexuality which i feel like when you look at all the consecrated virgins and you know the elevation of virginity obviously with mary and everything else like there's just this natural kind of religious denial to female sexuality and so when i wrote about her i talked about that the fact that it's like it was this religious type of ecstasy that she had. But I also had a friend who had made the comment one time that I guess it's some famous quote. And he says, every man who walks through the doors of a brothel is looking for God. Yeah. And how the, that concept, right. That maybe orgasms are like a taste of heaven. Like that's why it's called the, the little death, right. In French. Yeah. And yeah. so maybe it's because the, the only time that we get to experience that level of just like ecstasy here on earth is through our sexuality. And if that's what heaven is, then I guess I'll stop being an agnostic, you know, like sign me up, like, that'd be great. Um, but I also think that I, 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 again, I was writing this from the perspective of a Protestant who we did not really, we don't have saints. And so we had like Ruth and Esther and a couple others. We would 
bring Mary out every Christmas, like dust her off, then put her back in the closet until next December. So these strong women I was really drawn to, which is why I started writing the articles in the first place. I only wrote about women. Um, I really did want to write about the saint that gets barbecued and he's like, I'm done on this side. Flip me oh, really. Lawrence. Yeah. yeah. I think that's an amazing, funny story, but I was like only doing ladies for now. So never got to him before my Catholic canceling. But um, I do think that going from the consecrated virgin thing to kind of then looking at these other uh, examples I don't know. I think that there's maybe some more traditional Catholics who kind of hang out close to some of the Virgin Saints a bit much and then don't understand, you know, the totality of women. And so that's how y'all often, a lot of times we'll see the Virgin horror dichotomy all the time, that a woman has to be one or the other rather than like both at all times, you know? Yeah. No, and that's like, that is one of John Paul II's big things in the, the theology of the body that he wrote that like the the experience of like sexual love is a sign that points to this greater experience of love, this greater unity with God. So like, like you said, it's, it's a foretaste of this greater ideal. But then when you look at a saint like Teresa of Avila, like you have, I don't know, like you have people who want to totally desexualize the experience, say it's purely spiritual, but then you also have like in the late 1800s, you had these psychiatrists who were saying like, oh, this is an example of a hysterical woman whose sexuality was repressed. So it was kind of like released through this religious outlet. But ultimately, it was just like, again, really a sexual hysteria. When in reality, well, I, mean, I, I also released my hysteria through a sexual outlet. So I would say I would argue that that's what most of us do. I think men probably release their hysteria much more frequently than females do. And so perhaps that's why y'all are just so chill all the time and definitely time. not punching people in bars and <laughs> mass shootings and whatever. But uh, I think we've done a pretty good job actually at managing our hysteria with so little release or so much of history focusing on our release. But you guys I, credit. But anyway, I think you do enough. But I mean, I think there's, I, there's, I've heard of women even having orgasms while giving birth, like being able to like make that this hypnotic thing. Like our brains are crazy intense. And yeah. I'm actually reading a horrible book right now that's kind of researching sexual desire. And there's some fascinating stuff in that though, just how, I mean, the old adage, right? Men are a microwave, women are oven, like, and that type of thing. But there's so much mentally that goes on in women's heads that it's not just this physical thing. And I will say one of my favorite quotes of all time, actually, it's Pope John Paul II. I've probably shared this with you before, but whenever I say it at colleges, I always have to say, I can't remember who said it, but it was a great teacher who once said, because like I have to keep my agnostics yeah. straight. But he says, um, you know, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much, it's that it shows too little. Yeah. And I think that that's why women tend to be drawn more towards erotica or things like that, right? Things that stimulate our brain that's about the emotional connection about this type of thing. Whereas men can, it, it can be more base level and physical, which again, I think that if if women were to call men up to that level of the human connection of understanding the totality of the other and the love for the other that that's what it should be about like wanting the best for the other person like when women do better the world does better and I think that's the problem because we've just flipped it on its head right now and it's like let's it's just a race to the bottom to be like the most base level people and take that humanity and that connection and that you know transcendent spiritual whatever it is that happens like again I'll acknowledge there's something that happens that is beyond just our physical beings in those type of moments but also in spiritual moments and also through meditation and all these other things right I don't know I think the world would be a better place if we paid more attention to that and not just getting our rocks off or whatever yeah yeah I have a point there um so before we go destiny what do you want to plug what what how what do you want to tell the people to check out um, I would say, let's see, right now, New Wave Feminists are big things in Mexico. So that's kind of, we're still helping women here in the States, obviously, pregnant moms call us and um, 
we try to help them find housing and resources and stuff like that. But a big part of our focus, we just opened this shelter three weeks ago now in Juarez, Mexico for migrant mothers and children, because we noticed there was a huge uh, just void there to fill, that that's deemed a politically left issue. And so pro-lifers weren't going down there, but I'll tell you who was, uh, Planned Parenthood and all these other abortion mm. providers, like 100% um, preying on these women and saying, you know, it's going to be much easier for you to get asylum if you terminate. And a lot of these women were pregnant through sexual assault as they're coming um, up on this migration journey. And so they're incredibly vulnerable to being peddled abortions. Um, and also kind of a lack of knowledge about fetal development in a lot of different um, smaller, you know, uh, communities along the border. And so just very vulnerable to that narrative. And we saw okay, this is a place where there has to be some sort of pro-life message and not just a pro-life message, a pro-life feminist message because of the violence. Juarez is kind of the capital of femicide in Mexico um, right there along the border. And so um, really trying to just offer a safe harbor for women. And we had been supporting another shelter down there and then got the opportunity to buy our own and make it a new way from this consistent life ethics center. And so we're calling it the stellar shelter for short. Um, there's actually this really cool Stella Maris thing that goes behind it. Again, I'm not Catholic, but like y'all might get me eventually. I don't know. Yeah. There were just too many weird Stella Maris things that kept happening. And this other shelter we wanted fell through. And then all of a sudden, like we walk into this beautiful home that's massive and there's a giant Stella Maris like right on the floor. And I just burst in tears. I'm like, holy crap, what's going on? Like I have to acknowledge there's something to this. And so that's why we call it the Stella Shelter. Um, and so far, as of last week, we've already taken in 33 women and children and helped some of them who have already crossed over and been granted asylum, others who have been able to find local family and community to go live with. But that's kind of where we're at right now, trying to figure out like the more permanent residents and the people we can just help get off the streets for the night. Um, just had our first little birthday party there for one of the boys because he actually had his birthday in the Darien Gap, which is when you're coming up from um, Venezuela, you go through this jungle that is absolutely insane. And I wrote about the experience of this mother with her two children coming up through the Darien Gap and um, a lot of parents die and their children are just wandering around and it's really heartbreaking and horrific. And as I was writing it, I was like, is this trauma dumping? Like a hundred percent, absolutely it is, but also people need to know about it, especially pro-lifers, because there's a lot of dehumanization when it comes to, to migrants. And if we're not going to do it to unborn children in the womb, then maybe let's stop doing it to migrants as well. So how can people support that initiative? Um, they can go to New Wave Feminists, plural, because it's more than just me, .com. Uh, and we have a page for the Stellar Shelter, and we would love to have volunteers, um, you know, if they're willing to commit a couple weeks to come down and just help us that would be amazing or of course monetary donations things like that would be great as well okay so i will link that in the description but destiny thank you for coming back for round two this was so fun i definitely didn't think that we were going to talk for like an hour and 20 minutes but Maybe. Us, yeah, we, did. we did we did all right